Well, it's you and me and not a lot of people today, but that's okay. It might be family camp, it might be the REI garage sale, I don't know. In Bend, you just, there's probably 10,000 people in line down there today. Um, let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll kind of explain what we're doing today and what we're going to be doing in the next couple of weeks. So will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Antioch. Thank you that there can be a place where we celebrate um, character. Uh, we celebrate you. We celebrate the transforming work that you're doing in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. Um, and God, forgive us if we walk in and walk out the same today. Uh, we pray that we're open to learn, that we're teachable, that we're humble, that your word would bring something fresh, something new, a new word, a new idea, um, a new passion, God. You can do impossible things. And so we just ask for that this morning. We pray for it in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you guys remember, we spent a, a, a lot of weeks recently talking about giving your life away. You guys remember that? Were you here for that? Um, give your life away, give your life away. We talked about it over and over and over and over. And then more recently, we were talking about character. Uh, borrowed a lot from a book by a theologian named N.T. Wright called After You Believe, Why Christian Character Matters, and how faith is not just an event that's in our past, but it's a step that we, it's a journey, it's a path that we continually step down it with Christ closer to God. And it reshapes us, it transforms us, and we become people, men and women of character, of integrity, of virtue, of principle. And uh, so we have this give your life away concept, and we have this character concept. And so what we're going to do today, what we're going to kind of kick off for the next couple weeks, is trying to bring those two things together. And so what we're going to focus on is wisdom. Uh, so we're going to talk about that today, kind of introduce it. Our good friend, Ed Underwood, who is incredible, will be here next week. And then we're going to keep going after he's here for a couple more weeks about this topic of wisdom. What is wisdom? Why is it important? How do you get it? What does it do? What does it look like? Uh, what does it accomplish in our lives? So I basically the gist of what we want to say today in the next couple weeks is this bringing all these things together. Give your life away wisely, with wisdom. I mean, we, we forget about wisdom. We, the, the art of wisdom, the long lost faculty of discernment, of, of seeing two things and being able to decide, do I go right, do I go left? And just as we kick this off, just know that we're not talking about morality kinds of issues to steal, to not to steal, to kill, to not to kill, to hurt, to not to hurt. We're talking about wisdom issues where those moral rules that are, are really well explained throughout scripture really don't apply. Should I work at AT&T or Verizon? That's, that's not a moral issue, maybe. I don't know, depending on the, <laughs> the foundation of each of those companies. Should I marry this guy or this guy? Should I marry this girl or this girl? Should I get married at all? It's not really a moral issue. It's a discernment issue. And we've kind of lost the art of being able to navigate life because we kind of forsake wisdom for, for other kinds of things. And so we'll get a little bit more into that, but that's kind of what I want to present to you this morning in the next couple of weeks. And we're going to be hopping around uh, the Bible this morning, so I hope, you brought, I hope you brought yours. And what we're going to do is we're going to start where... Wisdom begins. So turn to Proverbs 8, verse 
22. And so basically, we're going to begin where wisdom begins. And we're going to kind of work through a couple of things today. Wisdom in creation in the beginning, wisdom in culture as in today, and wisdom in Christ and who he is. So if you have your Bible, let's go to Proverbs <clears throat> chapter 8, verse 22. Now, I'm going to kind of read this at length because it really sets up a, a really solid foundation for what we're going to be looking at today in the next couple of weeks. So read along with me, chapter 8, verse 22 in Proverbs. Now, you got to understand, this is wisdom personified. This is wisdom speaking to us. It says this, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. Where there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. Where does wisdom begin? Wisdom begins in the beginning, before anything. And that's what we read. If you flip back to Genesis 1, 1, where all this starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So you can picture I mean, employ your imagination and picture this scene, this madness, this thing with no form that is void and it's chaos. And into that chaos, God comes. And it says he brings order. He establishes a way, a proper way that things work. Into the dark, he creates light and he sets light forth. And it works with a proper function, a proper nature. And he creates water and vegetation and animals and man and woman. And they are designed to function a certain way, a proper working. He creates a reality. And wisdom is there with him creating. So we can almost look at wisdom as the nature of reality. And we can understand the nature, the form, the order. Very much in the same way we can study physics. We can understand the laws of physics. There's the laws of reality, laws of wisdom that God employs to create everything, to create order and form, to create a proper functioning reality. And wisdom is the spirit, the agent that God uses to take the madness and turn it into something functional, a particular type of reality. So wisdom creates a reality, the way things really, really, like deep down, really work. So right off the bat, we can see if we begin to understand wisdom, and the Proverbs are, are, are brilliant, and they really, the introductory chapters, like 1 through 10, really just talk about the value of wisdom. And it says like this, this is wisdom. Get wisdom. 
<laughs> this is wisdom. Get it. It's valuable, it's priceless, it's a treasure. If you find it, it changes everything. How do you begin to get wisdom? Get it, desire it, labor for it, chase after it, pursue it. Because when you do, you have an incredible insight into a reality, into the way things really ought to work. The way, thing, the, the way God designed things to work. So right off the bat, we can see wisdom in the beginning, creating, bringing form, order, establishing a proper functioning of things, a reality that as we draw closer to God, as we get closer to him, we get closer to that creation, closer to that intention, closer to that function and the form, closer to reality, the way things really and that's one of the best definitions of wisdom I've ever come across was a German scholar named Gerhard von Rod. <laughs> My name is Matt Smith, so I get really excited about cool names. Uh, you want to understand if your name is Matt Smith or like John Smith. Or, uh, Gerhard von Rod basically wrote a book called Wisdom in Israel. Uh, and he lived in the 1900s in Germany. Wisdom in Israel, and basically he said, wisdom is this, being competent with regard to reality, <laughs> being competent with regard to the right kind of reality. Now, what does he mean and what do I mean by the right kind of reality? Uh, if you flip to 1 Corinthians, Paul is kind of having a, a similar kind of conversation. Uh, chapter 1 is where we're going in 1 Corinthians. And listen to this. He's talking to, obviously, the church in Corinth in verse 20, chapter 1. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach and save those who believe. Now, this is the important part. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So he's saying, look, at the time, there's this cultural debate going on. Different groups within the culture are looking, expecting, demanding different things to prove certain things. He says, on one hand, we have the Jews. They're looking for signs. The signs of the prophets, the signs of Jonah, the signs from uh, the Old Testament of the law, uh, of the Torah. They're looking for those signs to give clarity to who God is. While over here, the Greeks, a whole different crew, same time, different culture, are looking for wisdom. Looking for things. And, and Paul does something. He doesn't affirm this. He doesn't affirm this. He says, let's bring this together in the middle. You're going to find some very simple kind of truth, which is Jesus died and rose again. And that's all I've got. I preach Christ crucified. So there's kind of this cultural debate going on about what is wisdom? What exactly are we looking for? What is the right way to see uh, reality? So as to be expected, I brought my whiteboard and my drawing skills and um, all kinds of colors. Here's... Here's kind of what we're talking about. You guys have all heard about the cultural debate, right? Uh, secular versus sacred, right? In the church, you guys with me? 
secular versus sacred, especially at Christmas time. It's intense. Uh, it's a really big battle going on. Uh, here's the deal. Let's see here. Secular, if we had to translate it, kind of go back to the core of the word where it came from, the most literal translation would be current. Current. Now. What is now? What's fashionable now? What's the big idea now? Not 100 years ago. 100 years ago it was modernism. Now it's postmodernism. It was reductionism and take things apart and figure out how they work. And now it's like nothing even exists. So why you can't take it apart? You know, Chesterton, who's a guy I'm going to be quoting a little bit today, G.K. Chesterton, a brilliant writer back in the 1800s, has some insights into postmodernism, I mean, like 200 years ago, which are fantastic. Um, but like pre-modern, it was like there's a cat and it's great and it purrs and that's great. And then modernism was like, we don't know it's a cat unless we cut it open, take it apart and pin it up on the wall and see all the parts. That's what makes a cat. And he, it, like 200 years ago, it's like there's going to come a day where people look at it and go, there is no cat. It's a new kind of philosophy to deny the cat itself. And that's kind of where we are, surprisingly enough. So secular means current. What's, what's happening now? So this is kind of the way that, um, that I think about this as a visual. This is the Deschutes River. And uh, I've kind of done this before with uh, our college kids. And this is you floating, uh, floating down the Deschutes River. Um, current as in time, yes, right here, right now, this generation, what is current, but current also as in it moves like a river. It changes, it turns over and over and over. It never stays the same. It evolves, it's moving. And if you hop in at Farewell Bend, an hour and a half later, granted you get out at the spillway, you'll be at Drake Park. Uh, you move, it changes, it takes you places, right? So secular is current in time and also in movement. So Paul was basically looking at the Jews, at the Greeks, and saying, this is what you guys are doing now, and it's wrong. So my question I was asking this week is, what are the current secular things happening now that we will chase after? What's fashionable? What are the things? And I think that the, the first thing that's really fashionable is um, information. We've replaced discernment and wisdom with information. I was really surprised this week when I found out that the information age is over. I, di I didn't see it coming. Like, I, I, was, I was in high school when AOL came out. Remember that noise when you turned on the internet? That whole kind of noise. Like, and then you could go on and, and search for things. And you could actually like find English papers that other people have written. You could like print them out and white out the name. And, and it was so new, like teachers had no idea what was going on. Information was everywhere. It's amazing. And it, it's just growing and growing and growing and evolving, evolving. Everything is accessible. Yesterday on Google, I, I typed in how to rebuild a carburetor. I've never even seen a carburetor. And I, right there, 12 steps, how to rebuild a carburetor. Information is accessible. Recipes for chocolate chip cookies right there. I don't know how to make chocolate chip cookies, but it's accessible. It's there. Anything you want to know. Literally within five seconds, you can pull it up and have access to that information. Quick, easy to digest information. 
And, and I heard this really cool term this last week by a guy named Timothy Young who started a, an internet company called Social Cast, which is basically like a social media entrepreneurial company that helps businesses be savvy with social media. And so this guy's around technology, he's around information, the access to information. And he used this word that I've never heard before. He said, well, first of all, he said, the information age is over and now we have come into the at attention age. <laughs> attention is now the greatest commodity. It's not information. If you can hold someone's attention for more than five minutes, that's worth something. Because that's really hard to do. If you can get someone to read more than 140 characters, like on Twitter, that's saying something. That's impressive. So the information age to the attention age, but he used this word, he used the word infobesity. <laughs> We're fat with information. Exactly the same way, he's got this fantastic essay comparing nutritional quality to informational quality. He actually takes a nutrition bar off of like a thing of Fig Newtons or something. And he's like, look at the food, you wanna, you wanna look at the calories, you wanna avoid this section, and you wanna get this section, right? The fats, the, all those things, but then the vitamins and the proteins are what you're going for. It's like, but we've got this culture that's obsessed with bad food, fast food, easy to access kind of food. We don't, we don't really value good food anymore. We've kind of just done away with it and made this whole fast food kind of culture. And the same thing, we're doing the exact same thing with information. And we are fat with poor information. We're overweight with anti-nutritional information. These little, you know, chicken nugget bite-sized kinds of things that we can consume in like one minute or two minutes or five minutes or God forbid, 10 minutes at a time. And we're fat with it. And because we're so fat with it, we're, we're robbing ourselves of really good information. And we're settling for this infobese kind of life. When there's so much richness and truth and beauty and meaning waiting to be discovered. But we're just, we're happy to float along this current with this easy to access kind of information and just say, I don't need to know. I don't even need to know how to get to know it because I've got Google. So, so why go to college? Why continue learning? Why ask hard questions? Why have conversation? I mean, that's one of the coolest things about Tony. This guy will stay up with you until six o'clock in the morning using words like ontological reflections and like what? Like, and, then, and then he listens for like hours. You can just have these great conversations. Like he's trying to be like anti this. And that's why he's a good man. He's got, he's got a foundation. He's kind of grounded. So one of, the, one of these things in our culture, I think if Paul was here kind of diagnosing and say, look, Ben Dites, you think it's all about information. You think if you just have the right information, you can make the right decision. You think you can take like uh, one person and another person and write out their pros and cons and say, well, according to the information, this one's obviously the one I should marry. No wisdom, no discernment, nothing like that. Uh, so information, infobese. I hope you guys wrote that down because that's a fantastic, that's a fantastic term. And the... Um, the second thing I think that's going on in our culture is technique. And I don't have Google to tell me how to spell it, so technique. Don't tell me who to be, tell me what to do. Don't make it abstract and hard to understand. Make it simple, give me a strategy. Give me four principles. Give me 10 steps. Give me 40 days. I can do 40 days. 41, you lost me. I can do 40 days. 
I, give me the technique that I'm looking for, the technique to find happiness, to find joy, the technique in my marriage, the technique at my job, the technique with my kids, because I don't know what's going on with them, the technique with my parents, because I can't talk to them anymore, the technique that I need to find all the things that I want for my life. I know it's out there. There are book covers after book covers after book covers with principles and ideas in seven days to this, how to have your best life now. Seven principles. I mean, it's so fashionable. This is what's moving our culture along. This is what's moving most of us along. And the thing about it is we don't even realize it. We don't even recognize how powerful our culture is, the ingrained worldview that we inherit being born into the time and place and country and ideologies that we're born into, how powerful they really are, how quick they move us, how quick that current really is. So what do you get with the secular, with the current, with information, with technique, when we forsake wisdom for these kinds of things? Um, I'm going to make up a word here, but this is what you get. Uncreation. The opposite of creation. This is the visual picture in my mind. We're all on the bridge. Uh, what's that bridge down by that big red barn um, on the, over the water where everybody has to get out and they float and walk around it? What's that place called? Colorado. Oh, Colorado. So we're all on that bridge. We're all on that bridge. There's like 100 people coming. They're floating. They're having a good time. They're, no cares in the world. It's just it's a good time. The current is moving them. And that spillway's there. And I've, I've heard that thing is deadly. If you go through it, you will be uncreated. <laughs> right? It'll be the end of you as you know it. So there's this idea of uncreation. Undoing the form. Undoing the order. Uh, wrecking the establishment that God puts together in the beginning. Saying that reality will work this way. And if all we do is conform our hearts and our souls to what is now, we will be uncreated. I mean, the Proverbs talks a lot about this, and so does James. In James 3.17, he says, look, if all you obey is the wisdom of the age, it's folly, opposite of wisdom. And if you obey that folly, there will be disorder. See the connection? God creates order. He brings order out of the mess, out of the havoc, a, a proper way that things work. And when we deny that and reject it and stand over here and just float with the current doing the whole thing, we undo the order. We subscribe to a different alternate kind of reality with different principles, different rules, different ideas. And we are uncreated in the sense that we are not living out the way God intended it to be lived out. We're creating our own reality. So if you conform, if we conform to this, there will be disorder, there will be pain, there will be suffering, there will be hurt, there will be illness, there will be uncreation. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's what, <clears throat> if you're taking notes, write down, Proverbs 8.36 and Proverbs 1.18, this principle that wisdom is talking and saying, 
you lie in wait to ambush your own life. You lie in wait to spill your own blood. You lie in wait to uncreate your own existence. If all you do is this, if you're just after information and technique, you're gonna be so far away from the heart of reality. You're gonna be your own worst enemy if this is what you conform to. So, secular. Underneath this, we have the sacred, which can be understood as the everlasting. Or to continue with our visual representation, the bedrock that this floats on, the foundation on which culture moves. That culture for all time, since time began, has been moving over the everlasting, the unchanging principles, the order and form and reality that God created. And instead of there being information and technique, we get what we're talking about today, wisdom. And the really amazing thing is that when you conform your life to this, I mean, to how God established it to function, instead of getting uncreation, we get recreation. 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 Isn't that what REI stands for? Recreational Equipment Incorporated? I didn't know that REI was like all about redoing God's creation. But that word recreation, we use it colloquially all the time. I'm going to the rec center to play basketball. I did that like for a million hours as a kid in the rec center playing basketball. Um, I'm going to recreate, I'm gonna go backpacking. Recreation, this idea. Um, but if you actually look at that word, it's literally what it means to recreate, to reestablish the order. And the most literal translation of recreation is healing. <laughs> undoing what's been done. I mean, nourishing the body. That's why we call it a rec center. It nourishes the physical body. It feeds it. It makes it better. It heals it from the illness or uh, from the obese, whatever. It, it, it brings flourishing. It brings fullness to the body. So recreation. I mean, when we conform our lives to the everlasting to God himself, there's this idea of we recreate what he created, form, order, purpose, understanding. So we can see that there's two different kinds of reality, this kind of reality and this kind of reality, one that's constantly changing and one that has been basically the same for an awful long time. Here's something else that Chesterton says in his book, Orthodoxy. He says, this is great. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. So like a man was meant to be doubtful about himself, where he is, everything around him, but undoubting about this, about what's going on here with wisdom, with truth. 
Okay, it's kind of how he sets this whole thing up. But this has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. I was saying, we got it backwards. We've had it backwards. It's not just postmodernism. It's not just Bend or, or the United States in 2010. Is it August now? In August of 2010. It's not just now. It's, it's been like this. This current, this thing that's moving has been, uh, it's been full of people drifting along for hundreds, uh, thousands and thousands of years. And he's saying we got it all wrong. We were meant to doubt kind of us, our own capacity, our own initiatives, our own ideas because we're small and we're finite. But there's this big, everlasting God underneath all of us. And now we've got it backwards. We, we have an incredible amount of doubt when it comes to this and an incredible amount of confidence when it comes to us. An incredible, unwavering confidence in our own ideas and our own beliefs. Um, <laughs> another Chesterton quote. We're just going to go off on him right now. Up here in this current place, he says, we will become a people without healthy hesitation and healthy complexity. We'll become a people without a healthy hesitation and a healthy complexity. We're so obsessed with information, getting it now, technique, what are my five principles? And we'll just adopt them and conform our life to them. And we won't ask any questions. We won't hesitate. And there's something healthy, a healthy hesitation a healthy complexity to life, to reality, that it's possibly bigger than we can understand. And Chesterton is fantastic. This. He gives this great mental image. He's like, look, the poet, basically the person who understands there's mystery, that there's something bigger, they're so content to just stick their head up in the heavens and look around. Wow. But it's this, it's this unhesitating, supremely confident individual, the logician, he calls it who tries to fit the eternities, the heavens, into his head, therefore exploding his head <laughs> on creation. There's something bigger going on. There's something underneath this current of culture that is happening and that has been happening for a long time. And it's not information. It's not technique. The Bible actually says, you want wisdom, get wisdom. How do you get it? relationship. I mean, this is the incredible, profound truth about the gospel, about the Christian faith in general, that it all rests on relationship, not information, not technique, wisdom, proximity to God himself, relational experience, relational proximity. Uh, flip over to Colossians, if you're still with me. Um, chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. The truth, the order, the function, the proper reality, and the things on earth. 
everything that we see and know and touch and experience every day. Jesus was before it, and in him they were created. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Wisdom, Proverbs 8, 22, in the beginning, creating with God, bringing order, bringing form. And Paul with this poetic exposition saying, look, Jesus was there. Jesus is it, right? I mean, Gospel of John, chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So what does this mean? What does this mean about wisdom? We looked at wisdom in the beginning in creation, form, order, proper reality. Wisdom in the culture of where we currently live. That what we subscribe to is actually uncreating. And the clear, the clear call from the gospel and that Paul is writing articulately throughout the epistles is that Jesus was in the beginning. He was there. He knows it. He gets it. The order, the form, the right reality. Now, what does this mean for us and what does this have to do with wisdom? Um, I'm going to introduce you to a guy in Proverbs named Agor. Proverbs 30. We have a lot in common with Agor, all of us. This idea, I want to give my life away, but I don't know how. Where do I begin? I mean, I want to give my life away, but I'm not that guy that goes to Africa. I'm not that guy that sells everything. I'm a dad. I'm a businessman. I'm a mom. I've got kids. I'm 22. I don't even know what I'm good at. I don't even know what my passion is yet. I want to give my life away, but I don't even know where to begin. I don't have enough understanding. My perspective is too small. I don't get it. It's frustrating. It makes me cry. I want it so bad, but where do I begin? Listen to this. Agor, Proverbs 30, verse 1. He says, I am weary, O God. I'm weary, O God, and I'm worn out. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Verse four, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. I don't mean to shout, but there's an exclamation point right there. So 
want to be grammatically correct. Surely you know, where is he? I'm so small, I don't get it. Too many questions, too much doubt. I don't have understanding. There's got to be someone who gets it, a proper perspective, a proper insight into the proper reality that I can be with, that can show me. There's got to be some way for me to connect with someone like that because if it's just up to me, I'm going to be washed away on this current forever. I will officially uncreate my own life and I don't want that. I want to give it away. I want to adopt the principles of God, but I don't know where to begin. How do I start this? Where is the one who has understanding? Where is the one who's come down from heaven? Is there anyone who is there in the beginning who gets this order and form and proper reality? Because if there is, I would love to know him. I would love to have that conversation. I would love to have that insight. I would love to have the confidence that that relationship brings to my life. John the Baptist, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, says this. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God will remain on him. Agor is desperate for the perspective. Where's the one who knows? And John the Baptist is saying, it's not me. It's this guy coming. It's Jesus. He was there, creating wisdom personified. He was here with us, speaking, teaching, living, healing, discussing, conversing, challenging, questioning, leading. He was here, and he's still here. Do you want the perspective? Do you want the insight? Do you want the knowledge? There is this common theme throughout the Proverbs that wisdom is a path. Again, not an event, it's a path, a picture of your life that you're walking down one step at a time, one day after another, one year after another for your whole life. It is a path that you journey down. And the incredible thing is that Jesus has the audacity in John 14, 6, to say, I am that path. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Paul saying, he was there in the beginning. In the madness, he brought form. 
He, he brought solidity. He brought principle. Jesus is saying it's not a technique. It's not enough information. It's exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. It's Jesus himself. It's wisdom garnered from relationship. Wisdom gained from experience journeying with Christ himself. He is the path. He is wisdom. Do you want to know what wisdom is? It's closeness and proximity to God. And what's the result of that? If you conform your life to this, you're uncreated. You would be called a fool to uncreate your own life, to harm yourself, to lie in ambush, to destroy your very own existence. A fool. And what do you get if you conform your life to this? Jesus himself, wisdom, all things created through him, for him, by him. If we get that, if we conform our life to that, what's the result? Character. Character. Men and women of character. Because God's a transformer. I mean, not like a, not like a diesel truck that turns into a laser-shooting robot. But, but when things touch him, they change. They transform made new. They're brought back to life. They're recreated. They're recreated. I'm never going to be able to drive by the rec center again without thinking about all of these things. So what, what is wisdom? Living according to the right reality. The right reality. Living in proximity to God, close proximity to God. Being transformed by him because we're so close to him. And I also think wisdom is the freedom, like Agor, to say, I don't know. I mean, to me, that's become one of the most um, admirable qualities of people that I respect is that when the time is appropriate, they say, I don't know. They don't make it up. They don't BS you. They don't act like they're somebody they're not. They don't act like they know something they don't know. They say, I don't know. But I'll find out. Let's journey together. Let's walk the path. Let's discover what it is we're looking for here. I want to give you guys all permission to be able to say confidently, I don't know. <laughs> it's okay. Where is to look for the one who has understanding, to look for the one who has perspective? Because like Chesterton says, we've got it backwards. We're doubting the wrong things and having our confidence in the wrong thing. And forgive us if we become a people without healthy hesitation and appreciation for a healthy complexity. Forgive us if that's what we settle for. If we forsake the path for information, for technique. Uh, living the right reality, close proximity to God, freedom to say, I don't know. Uh, Ed is going to be here next week, and he's going to do a great job kind of continuing this conversation. And I'm going to invite Liz up with uh, Ben, another of our interns, who's going to share a, a song with us as we take our offering today. Um, but I just want you guys to... Say, I don't know if you want to. 
questions. Seek the one who has understanding. And maybe this week for seven days, when we come back again next week, we'll try our best to look beyond information and technique to what's lying beneath it. That is wisdom. The very heart of God. The very spirit of God, the high counselor himself. He says, I am the path, I am the way. Come to me and you will be recreated. Let's pray. God, first, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for being available to us. Um, God, I pray that we would have the freedom to perform a self-diagnosis where we are, obsessed and infobese, just driven by technique after technique, God, that we would have the freedom to commit that self-diagnosis, a cultural diagnosis, God, that that would lead us to some kind of divine diagnosis, that something is wrong here, and that you bring words of life, you do recreate. God, that we would not forsake the path or the process for the event or the program, but that we would commit to journey with you, to be transformed, to be remade by you, that we would be people with healthy hesitation appreciating a healthy complexity, knowing that in the middle of it all is you and your son. God, we pray all these things in your son's name.